You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. Howdy, this is Eleanor Kennedy, Assistant Managing Editor of Columbus Business First and the host of this podcast, Women of Influence. This podcast features conversations with Columbus's leading women in business in which they talk about how they gained power, how they keep it, and how other women can follow in their footsteps. Today we're chatting with Casey McCarty, CEO of the Idea Foundry. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So Casey, I wanted to start. You've been the CEO for about a year now, right? Yes. For several years before that, you were the COO. About seven years ago. Seven years. So let's start there. Can you talk about that transition from being COO to CEO? What was the hardest part and some of the biggest changes that came with that? (laughs) Yeah. So for seven years, I was COO, the operations officer, and I was really behind the scenes, right? So (laughs) think about, I think about operations as like your organs. You don't really think about them unless there's something going awry with them, right? Like operations should feel sort of seamless, right? It's all the thing, the infrastructure around how a business takes care of its clients and customers and makes money. So despite having been here for seven years and despite, you know, being part of growing that infrastructure and designing some of those operational outflows, I was not the front man. And Mm -hmm. so as I took over just a year ago, in August, I was still running into situations where I'd be, say, upstairs in our co-working space and just like chatting with people around some coffee, and someone would be like, "Oh, which uh, which office do you have, or what business do you run?" And I'd be like, "Ah, oh, this one." <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was really just indicative that because I had been so deeply enmeshed in sort of like the background leadership, I was very hands-on with staff and with all the sort of operational infrastructure that uh, I really hadn't had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to make as many relationships with a lot of our newer mm-hmm. tenants and customers and and be like in front to be like, oh, here, here I am. Here mm-hmm. is a person who is in a leadership role of this company. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lesson learned about even if your you know job description isn't necessarily like out in front. Like, uh, if you have career aspirations, better make sure people know, <laughs> know your face. <laughs> um, well, what, what convinced you that making the jump from COO to CEO was the right move for you? Was that something you aspired to for a long time or just kind of the timing lined up? Um, I would say this whole career hasn't been something that I planned. <laughs> right? Did like, I see it? you were a criminal justice 
major? Yeah, is- <laughs> so I did my, my graduate, I got a master's of science in criminal justice and public policy, and then I did a post-grad stint in homeland security, studying emergency management and homeland security. So that was my accidental voyage to this gig and mm-hmm. to entrepreneurship in general. I got out of grad school at the apex of the recession and as a newly minted sort of research academic, you can imagine <laughs> the job prospects the were a little opened limited. Up before you. <laughs> right. But my my parents are small business owners, my grandparents are small business owners, and so if you're in an economic situation where it's like you could get a random retail job or whatnot, which I've had tons of just generic blue collar jobs over the course of my life and college and and to get through college and grad school. But if your choice is that or, you know, you can't, you don't have access to your academic field, just start your own, start your own thing. (laughs) And that was sort of normalized within my family because everybody had done it. And it wasn't a hey, you have to find out what you want to do for the rest of your life uh, type of existential question. It was like, just pick something with a low barrier to market entry and learn how to get people to pay you for your skills (laughs) on the open market as Mm -hmm. opposed to just being an employee. And it was how to set up a website and how to deal with your business taxes and how to woo customers. And in the course of sort of networking for that small business, I found the Idea Foundry um, and it's a much more younger stage of its existence, obviously about eight years ago, um, in this sort of dirty, dusty, dark warehouse space that was where we affectionately called it Chicken District because (laughs) there was a Popeye's and a Church's and a KFC all on one corner, and we were next to a homeless shelter and a recycling plant, and, you know, it was a much harder ask to get people to show up than to our big, beautiful, multi-million dollar space now. (laughs) And I sort of, you know, I bought into the mission of, you know, what our sort of the organization's aspirations were and just took over <laughs> to now literally. So, uh, but, but it was sort of like, I wasn't that deeply attached to the business that I had created that it was sort of like, oh, I, I have value. I can add to this company. Uh-huh. What and was so, the business that you were running? It was a consultancy. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I used to joke, like, I sort of just took over this business, and now that's, you know, literally true, but that wasn't the aspiration. It wasn't like, I'm going to run this one day. But but the decision to transition from COO to CEO was a group decision with our founder and previous CEO, Alex, and our investor partners, and sort of taking a look at the economic landscape and what we had done and what we hoped to do and trying to make an intelligent decision about like who could best execute that. Right. Mm -hmm. So we grew really fast and we attracted investor partners and that was awesome because that let us build out our space and offer so much more than we had been offering, you know, but of course that comes with a, with a higher level of responsibility and fiduciary responsibility when you're taking on investment and we needed to get weaned off of that investor capital so that we mm-hmm. could be a self-sustaining enterprise. And that required sort of like a, a fundamental shift from being the really informal sort of clubhouse atmosphere, the, the bootstrapped startup with, you know, less mature. Like we didn't have a mission statement or, you know, we, we did, couldn't articulate some really important things about our business that mm-hmm. grown-up businesses with multi-million dollar spaces and investor 
relations should really be able to do. Um, and so that was really my role to step into was to how do we do 2.0 and how mm-hmm. do we grow it up and get it through its, you know, if we went through our awkward teenage years as we were taking on investment and building a new spaces, like how do we graduate now and uh-huh. join the adult world <laughs> of businesses? So what has that required? Kind of what changes have you brought or what are you really focused on as CEO? I'm really focused on the biz- making a business out of it, right? So we've seen in the industry landscape, makerspaces have so many different permutations. There's mm-hmm. little nonprofit ones. There's ones that are attached to libraries. There's really co-op ones that are very insular and maybe just a handful of people and they sort of meet up in a church basement and share a similar hobby there are and then of course on the opposite end there's models like ours which are have so many facets that are open to the general public as well as membership like tech shop was and then tech shop was sort of like the bigger flagship one with a lot of locations and then they filed for bankruptcy and so we see sort of a pattern that if maker spaces don't focus on financial sustainability they're at risk because mm-hmm. you know the capital that is required to get tools and tech and then the target market, you know, artists, artisans, hobbyists, small business owners aren't necessarily those with super deep pockets, right? Like you have to run on some pretty narrow margins. Mm-hmm. And so while you absolutely want to have that creative, vibrant, authentic community, you also really have to mind your numbers and and run a tight operation. Mm -hmm. This gets at this a little bit, but what do you wish more people knew about the Idea Foundry? Maybe what do you think some misconceptions are in Columbus or what is kind of, if you could tell everyone, this is the thing you must (laughs) know about us, what would it be? How lovely, because I never get that opportunity. (laughs) So the the Idea Foundry, we, it's sort of asking what a makerspace is, is sort of like asking what a library is. It can Mm -hmm. be so many things to different people. And we have so many different types of people that use us for different reasons. So what binds us together together is that we're we're a space for makers, we're a space for creatives. It's a community that's organized around the passion of making, whether that's for its own intrinsic value as a hobby or a passion, or it's because you're making your business about it. It doesn't matter. It's all of our community. We share spaces, uh, whether that's offices, like a private office, or it's production space because maybe your garage is not the best place to be putting together this large piece of furniture or whatnot. Or maybe you just need to tuck away in the co-working space. Um, We share tools and technology from conventional woodworking, welding, to more high-tech like 3D printers, lasers, CNC machines. And we share knowledge, and that's sort of a real value out of our community, whether it's informal people attending meetups or special guest speakers or debates or TEDx salons to sort of be curious, or it's one of our 80 different classes Mm -hmm. from the tools and the tech to business fundamentals. It's just a place for lifelong learning. Um, Or it's having us help you connect to another member of our community. Like, I don't do programming like who are our best nerds. Like, we can help you with that. We will introduce (laughs) you to our best nerds. So it's those three facets. And then whatever people sort of need to bring to that. We have people who are retired and are sort of just looking to get back into doing something that they love to do. 
up to people that that's their full-time enterprises, their small business from teams of two to 20 Mm-hmm. Uh, and sort of everything in between. It's a real mixed bag. Gotcha. We'll shift a little bit more to you in a minute, but I'm very interested in this. Does, does making the financials work and focusing more on that, has that led to any sort of hard conversations or, or big changes in the time that you've been there? And how have you handled that or approached yeah, that? Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that is tends to be a feature of why a lot of makerspaces don't become for-profit models or even sort of social entrepreneurships is that the money question is always a hard conversation to have with members, right? Because you believe in what you're doing. You believe in helping small business owners. You believe in providing this sort of like transformative experience of making to people. And you want as many people to be able to afford that and be a part of that as possible. However, you also have to keep your electric bill paid and you have to keep your staff happy Um, Or you won't be around to do it at all, right? (laughs) And so there is a perpetual give and take relationship for that. So when I took over, we weren't very, we weren't priced in the marketplace that was sort of like anywhere comparable. um, And we needed, and we weren't covering the overhead uh, of what we needed to cover with those operations. And so that was the first sort of like, well, I guess if I'm going to go down for being bad cop, let's just get it over with, right? Like, uh-huh. So we had to adjust some of those things. We brought our co-working prices up to about low median um, of, of the price points within the ecosystem. Um, our offices are now pretty comparable to the marketplace. And our makerspace price, even though we did raise that a few years ago, is still like ridiculously low compared to makerspaces all over the country and in sort of similarly sized markets. Because that's where our heart is uh, in the makerspace is like how we founded, you know, we want to keep that as approachable as possible. But, you know, we have to also sort of be realistic about, mm-hmm. you know, we want this resource to be open and available to people. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to transition a little bit and go back to your background some. So what interested you in criminal justice initially? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, Yeah. Um, Well, it is a part of society that really fascinates me because it is an intersection of, in in the most intimate way of what we allow the state to sort of, I don't know how deep you want to get here, but (laughs) this is where we let the state meter our our liberties, right? Mm -hmm. And, And because we need to, because... Crime is a thing that happens, and it, you know we have to control that for a myriad of social reasons. But um, it also creates a system that is run by people, and people are wrought with errors. And some of these systemic variations have catastrophic outcomes for certain communities, certain marginalized communities particularly. And it's really... A, a test of how well of our checks and balances are working. Mm-hmm. And, and so that dynamic with law and society and economics and sort of all fusing, fusing together in like a real world policy, it was just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to learn more about it and to study it. And in my younger and naive days, it was, it was sort of learning like, oh, we kind of thought like, well, if if the science, you know, science data would show certain criminal justice policies or programs or you know, prison programs were having uh, producing bad outcomes or not producing good outcomes, like surely politicians would like make better decisions <laughs> based on data and science. And that turns out 
isn't true. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that is why I'm not working in that field yeah. <laughs> uh, in addition to the recession. Uh-huh. So that it is a little bit of a, a disillusionment in there. But I still just for funsies will read uh, ridiculous <laughs> niche volumes on what is going on right now. Like I still am very much interested in I'm still an advocate for a certain number of um, reforms and, mm-hmm. and, and social justice yeah. issues about that. But mm-hmm. that'll always be just like intellectually and sort of like emotionally connected to. Yeah. Well, and I guess this isn't so much good because the reason that people talk about it is because it's something that there's a lot of debate about. But there's, there is a lot of social conversation going on and you know, documentaries and reading and stuff that you can kind of engage with in yeah. your personal time. Yeah, and so. it's a it's a great. I mean, honestly, too, it's a you can have so many just philosophical conversations about mm-hmm. that, right? It's like, what is the value of the justice system, right? Like, is it for revenge? What role does that have, or is it mm-hmm. for transforming people into productive people of society? And it's probably it's the answer, like all philosophical answers, is not either or, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. a false choice. But mm-hmm. then, how do you? Um, how do you go from these sort of philosophical or academic constructs and say, well, we're going to have to have a policy that is run by people as error prone as we are and bureaucratic systems are going to have to deliver this set of policy. Uh-huh. And like, how does that get transformed and uh, misaligned through the, through the channels? Yeah, that feels like, does that feel like a totally different type of thinking than the thinking that you do every day at the Idea Foundry that's a lot more about dollars and cents or is there a way that those kind of the the ways that your brain works yeah right? that's a super deep question yeah no I love it I love this is like way more interesting than I was expecting um no I mean I think in any time you're so my tendency is to say you're taking a very complex system right the idea foundry is a complex system too we're running essentially five separate businesses within one entity right mm-hmm. we have very distinctly different customer profiles who have markedly different needs than the other customer profiles and some of the needs can live harmoniously and some compete for resources and staff time uh, and money and uh, you, you have sort of like the broader social implications of small business and the maker movement and so you have a complex system that is run by humans, right? And we have staff, staff are human motivated, our members are are motivated by a myriad of things. And so when it boils down to it, it's like any ecosystem, Mm -hmm. right? Where it, you know, you have what you hope to accomplish in it, and then you have the delta in like the reality because people, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all problem solving from there. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. (laughs) How big is your team at the Idea Foundry that you're over. We are eight eight staff and then about a dozen freelance instructors. Is it, we'll get more and I guess what this podcast is ostensibly about, <laughs> is it pretty evenly split gender-wise? Is it a female-dominated team, male-dominated team? I would say it's pretty closely even split without like finger counting yeah. who, who's what. I mean, it's always it's always been pretty... Um, we we definitely have more female representation than say the average maker space. Yeah, right? well, that, and that's what I was going to ask. Kind of the I guess the maker industry is that an industry that tends to be more male dominated? Yeah, or has... it's deeply it's deeply male dominated. There, I recall reading a study where it was like two percent of women were in leadership roles, like board roles 
or staff roles of leadership um, across the country in maker spaces. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's probably pretty close to what I observe when I speak at conferences or I'm otherwise sort of in our industry groups. It is mm-hmm. very, very male dominated. Is that something that has an impact on you or that you think about? Or is it just sort of, that's just what the industry is, you know, and you just kind of go about your business? I would say there's there's something cautionary to fear, like walking into a male-dominated space and say like, oh, this is going to get weird. When I started taking over uh, and sort of like, you know, as, as a brand new to the Idea Foundry person, the old Idea Foundry that I was coming into and I was volunteering and it was sort of like, mm, I'm going to start cat wrangling and implementing some things. And I barely had a claim to any sort of authority other than the founder was like, yes, please help. <laughs> um, but we, you know, we didn't really have well-defined titles or anything at that point. And, you know, I could see things that could be improved in systems because that is sort of where my brain is, like looking for inefficiencies and looking at how things work together and are related to each other that maybe it doesn't seem at first blush that they're related or connected. And I think that's what I do really well. And I was going in, I was like, oh, I'm just going to be that chick that strolls in and starts telling people like what to do. And they're going to hate that because they're going to be like, who even is she? (laughs) She doesn't know how to use any of these tools or tech. Right. Because I had been taught, like they had taught me how to use things like the laser, the shot botter, the woodworking tools. And I'm not particularly great at them. Uh uh (laughs) Like I'm not, I don't have particular like competence like I could not build the the type of furniture that we are making like I did not have street cred so to speak and I was like I was just expecting all of this pushback or sort of a diminutive response to me and that's not what I encountered at all like people the members overwhelmingly male members at the time like they wanted it to be successful and uh, they they were grateful that someone was sort of taking an initiative or taking responsibility for doing the sort of hard work of getting people all moving in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of reflected on that later. It was like oh, all these sort of anxieties about being in this overwhelmingly male-dominated space didn't end up coming to fruition. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it's a progressive sort of people, people who are entrepreneurs, people who are creatives, don't really encounter a lot of sort of toxic sexism or mm-hmm. anything anything like that. Um, if anything, it is almost like I'll get a hearty chortle about it when I encounter it in the wild. Um, so my COO, uh, Jack Story, and I've gone and taken some meetings uh, with other people from cities that are, say, interested in creating a makerspace. And um, it'll be sort of overwhelmingly older white men that'll do this and they'll ask a question and I will answer the question and then they'll like awkwardly lean like around me if we're even on the same side of the table to like look at Jack <laughs> like like just waiting for him to repeat what I've just said to sort of validate it uh-huh. um, and that'll be like the milder version we've had a co- like a, a couple more egregious examples <laughs> of it just like being blatant but it is sort of like oh I forgot that that's a thing. Right? Like, <laughs> I forgot that this is a thing. And what do you do in that instance? Just sort of carry on as though nothing has happened? Or, or do you address it when there's sort of those... You know, yeah, it really... I mean, it sort of depends. Uh, if it's sort of accidental sexism, <laughs> right? I might let it slide until the behavior starts to get 
uh, you know, a little more aggressive. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, it's not like these are bad people. Like, they're just not aware of it. They're like, oh, I had this expectation that the Casey who runs a makerspace that I was going to talk to was going to be a dude. Mm-hmm. And now there's this lady showing up, and I don't really know what to do with that in my brain. But that's not like a conscious choice that people are making. And then mm-hmm. I think a lot of times over time as we're having conversations, and then they're like, oh, okay, you're just like the expert in this, and that's cool. And, mm-hmm. and they'll warm up to that. Like I said, there's been a couple of more egregious where it's like you're not converting anybody to like the error of their ways. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's just like, well, we are not doing business with that company or that person or whatever because like you're making bad business choices mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just, you just are mm-hmm. so you mentioned early on you, you said your parents are both small business owners or they own a small business tell me a little bit more about your background yeah um so I grew up in a small town in Sydney Ohio um it's about an hour and a half away from here and uh, my dad's a CPA uh-huh. And my mom was also an accountant in her early days. And so my dad has worked for other companies too, but he also had his own and still has his own CPA firm. And so she would help with that. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. It, was a, it was very much a family business. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So she would be doing parts and he would be doing parts. And as early as I can possibly remember, I, was, I would be like, oh, here, you're going to answer the phone and take messages or you're going to pass stuff off to clients or then when you get a little order, it's like, you're going to enter this data and do a spreadsheet. <laughs> like, oh, cool, I guess. <laughs> so do you feel like that kind of primed you for the career that you have now, having that accounting deep in your soul? <laughs> I don't know if it's that deep. That, so I went back for an MBA also during the time that I was a COO and that was still... My least favorite part. <laughs> my least favorite part. At this point, I'm you just you pay professionals, yeah. right? Like you, I'm not gonna read up. But like I pay the lawyer, I pay the PR firm, I pay the accountants, right? Like you mm-hmm. just pay people to do their job. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, to be fluent enough that you know what you're looking yeah. at. But I don't ever purport to have that level of numeric. Yeah. <laughs> skills in that regard but I think what was useful and my grandparents are were also small business owners in a variety my grandfather was a big band musician like a touring big band musician oh, that's cool. and he never really retired so much as just took like less active gigs so uh-huh. then he owned a music store at one point and when he retired from that, uh, he fixed band instruments for like the, the schools. Mm-hmm. They were, my grandfather and my grandmother were jewelers at one point, and they sort of like had this cool retiree nomadic lifestyle where they would travel around the nation, like making and selling jewelry. Wow. Um, so they've lived in, we've had all these different permutations. And so, if anything, it's sort of just normalized that. Uh-huh. Like, you create your own gig, and it might be this today, and it might be that tomorrow, and you just you just figure it out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> cool. That's neat. What uh, instrument did he play, or did he play a lot Saxophone. of Saxophone. Mm-hmm. Cool. I played the trombone when I was younger, but I never did. I could have become a big band musician. Yeah. Taking a different path. I tried piano for a hot second. That didn't go very well. <laughs> I, I ended up... Studying martial arts, ah. <laughs> and, uh, and that's that that in, ba- in ballet. So I, oh. I did ballet and martial arts, but I I couldn't I couldn't play the piano anymore to save yeah. my life. Do you still do any kind of martial arts or dance? I would. My daughter probably regrets that I dance sometimes. <laughs> 
be like, she's in that awkward tween, uh-huh. tween stage. So be like, oh no, what are you doing, mom? <laughs> well, yeah, let's we'll get a, to know a little bit more about you. So tell me where we'll find you on a free Saturday, or do you have free Saturdays? Yeah. I don't know how much you're working <laughs> right. at this space. You know, one of the good things about being the boss is that it's a, it's a blessing and a curse, right? So you're always on, so to speak, but then you do have a lot more control over your time, and mm-hmm. so. It might be several weeks where I don't really have a free Saturday, but then it could be like, yeah, I'm going to go out of town on like a random Monday through Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I really thrive on some of those periodic getaways to just like, like I went to South Dakota randomly in mm-hmm. February. I don't know. I haven't been there since I was a kid. <laughs> just went by myself, like oh, pre-tour cool. season, just going to get some... That's the one Nature. with Mount Rushmore, right? Mount Rushmore, the Badlands, um, Wyoming's right there. So there's a Devil's Tower, which is a nice hiking spot. Uh-huh. And I can, like, I'm sort of one of those introverted extroverts. Like, I can, I can people real hard. Uh-huh. And then I'm like, I don't want to people. <laughs> so I love sort of traveling on, like, off days and off seasons so that you can really just have those quiet experiences with a space that's not like elbow to elbow yeah. with a bunch of tourists. And what's the best trip you've ever taken? I went to speak at a makerspace conference that was in Santa Fe a couple years ago. And we used to spend a lot of time in the Southwest growing up. My mm. mom was a Navy brat. They moved around. She was out West a lot. So when I was younger, every summer we would take these like multi-week road trips through the southwest Mm -hmm. and i was in the sort of crumpled up in the backseat of a camaro for these trips Mm -hmm. so it wasn't always like the the best experience for me as a kid and it that trip so flew into albuquerque and drove got a rental car drove into santa fe and kind of played hooky on the last day of the conference it was after my speaking part and all that and just like drove into the mountains by myself in this rental car and I, I, it was so serene. It was sort of nostalgic, right? Because I'm in some of these spaces that I had been that I hadn't been in since I w- was a child. But it was just, you know, I sort of knew why my dad loved driving around the mountains in a Camaro, uh-huh. right? Like you just had this. You have to pay attention so deeply because the roads, you know, it's mm-hmm. mountainous, it's curvy, it's a little dangerous here and there, and so your brain is just like very focused on nature and on the road and your car and what a great moment so you know like you're not really stressed about about like the unanswered email from Uh Tuesday or or whatnot (laughs) so um, I thought that that was a really restorative yeah trip Mm -hmm. this is the second time this has come up today I have my like lifelong ambition which is so lame is to go to the Grand Canyon because I've never been there yeah Um, so I feel like this conversation is just further making me like I gotta get out to that part of the country go out west it's beautiful even the storms are beautiful like Uh and the the sky like you get out of it's so easy to get out of a metro area and Uh the the sky just looks like amazing like you just humble as a human in the the space right the the distance plays tricks on you because you could be looking at a mountain and driving and driving and driving and it looks like you're you've gone nowhere and you're sort of just like in awe of your size compared to the trees compared to everything they're like some of the last places in the country that can sort of feel really rugged and Uh remote wow that sounds awesome do you read much is there any type of books you like to read or anything you're reading right now (laughs) so i just finished up a book about prosecutorial discretion <laughs> called Charge. 
Uh, oh, by uh, Emily Bazelon? Yeah, I, re- I heard the NPR segment about mm-hmm. it, and then I, I read that. Finally got around to reading it, I should say. But then now I'm, also, I'm reading a book called The Art of Forgery. It's just about the history of art forgers. Mm-hmm. That sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it can be pretty random. I read some gardening books this summer because I was trying to put some... Uh, some plant life on my patio in Franklin's Inn. Do you read any business books or not really? Certainly yes. Certainly yes. And I definitely read a bunch in the course of my MBA and mm-hmm. through the course of sort of trying to learn something specific about like marketing or we read stuff on Salesforce <laughs> <laughs> whatever, right? So Woo. those I think are more like technical. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. You're like, oh, I should read this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Recently, I was reading about, like, public speaking, is doing more about that and mm-hmm. trying to, you know, like I said, the transition from being the behind-the-scenes uh, person to being up in front mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, just trying to get better at things like that. Stories about art forgers are inherently a little more sexy than, like, human resource law. <laughs> uh, not that you don't need both. And you mentioned you have a daughter. You just have the I have one. Two, two. I have two. two. Very spunky daughters. Uh-huh. 11, How old are they? Eleven and seven. Gotcha. So one just went to middle school, uh-huh. and one's in first grade. And now I get to overuse the phrase that I'm the mother of dragons, but I feel like it's <laughs> appropriate because I'm pretty sure, just seeing what they do to like the living room in the first fifteen minutes after they get home from school, I'm pretty sure they could raise a village in like forty-five minutes or less. <laughs> just like destruction. Oh, raise RZ. Yeah. <laughs> Just destruction. Uh-huh. Do you find, I guess this, this speaks a little bit to being the boss, you can kind of make your schedule as you need it to be to kind of get the time you have with them, or is that a challenge, balancing that? Work-life balance is like the perpetual moving target yeah. of our age, right? Uh-huh. I do shared parenting um, with my ex-husband, and that you know was really remarkably amicable. <laughs> um, but I yes, I'm privileged to the to the extent that I, you know, well, if they, one of them is sick or whatnot, it's mm-hmm. not like a panic about how we're going to mm-hmm. handle that situation. And I, you know, make that environment for our staff as well, too, because, like, I understand, you know, you want to have talented people who don't want to stress out about their family obligations. And mm-hmm. so, you know, certainly there's, like, the front desk has staffing a certain time limit or people have classes or appointments. But other than that, it's pretty flexible, environment Mm -hmm. like work from home when you need to take whatever time like take what time you Uh need to meet your family obligations Mm -hmm. because that is really important for sort of developing professionally is to say it's not an either or it's Mm -hmm. not either I have a family or I work on my career Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm a big I'm a big proponent of being flexible whenever is possible but that too the girls have been able to observe my also professional growth right and so when they first hung out at the shop with me it was the old location and you know they've gotten to see a new space they've gotten to see that sort of construction process they get to interact with people and that sort of confidence building and I got it too is in that sort of small business family but Mm -hmm. it's just it's normalized to them Mm -hmm. too and sometimes I'll like I've taken them out of school for like Rosh Hashanah or something because they never get like their holidays off mm-hmm. school and like cool we're gonna go to the museum and then we're gonna stop by the shop and we're gonna do something on the laser 
and they just sort of grow up with like, oh, lasers are a thing that exists <laughs> in this world, right? And uh -huh. they sort of forget that that's not, you know, a normal situation. And, you know, you're never sure like how much your kids absorb of any of those experiences or whatnot. But I, I was, uh, I was, we were at, <laughs> we were at a restaurant and Abby, who loves uh, seafood, she was eating like she'd ordered like a lobster and shrimp. And the staff kind of commented like, oh, you have expensive taste. You're going to have to marry well. And oh. she just was like, I'm going to run a business with my mom. Oh. And I was like, this book, <laughs> right? Like the new wave is not here for that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's great. Kind of to wrap up, if, if you were talking to... 22-year-old, new graduate, young woman coming out of Ohio State, what would you tell her she wanted to have your career 10 years from now, 15 years from now? What would you want her to know? Best yeah. piece of advice. So because mine was so accidental, I don't really have like a formula, do this, then this, then this. But I will say if it's anything that's been constant, it's been sort of the pursuit of lifelong learning. Uh, you know, I don't think... Our generation, you know, it's not the same as where you go into and you have one job for 40 years, right? Like our, and not, and I don't think that that should be the case because people's interests changes and um, you gain more skills over time. And I don't think that's something that is a liability. You know, I think that's to be celebrated. I also think that it's not, you get done with college and you stop learning, right? I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, the Idea Foundry is a place for lifelong learning. We teach classes. We try to get people in, and you see people that come in with all these, well, I couldn't possibly learn that now. I'm 42, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. And, you know, at some point, you go from being youthful and, uh, okay, that might be intimidating, but I'll, like, bite that off because I'm... You know, I'm going to take this college class, and I know it's going to be a little hard, but, like, I want to do it. And you sort of forget that those things felt intimidating at the time, too. But mm -hmm. you're sort of just, like, approaching them with this, like, youthful optimism of, like, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, any habit, if you don't use it, it atrophies. And so if you stop learning when you leave college what a loss because then you're not as agile as you could be mm -hmm. if you kept your brain and your sort of psyche ready for those experiences mm -hmm. so that when you do need to pivot for your career or whatever else that you might need to learn on the fly like you're it's, it's you're going to be less good at it than yeah. if you had kept up that practice uh -huh. so, you know for as much I mean from a student debt perspective like I'm a little down on all the extra education that I have <laughs> but from like a, a intrinsic value no I'm not I'm not upset that I went to grad school for something I don't use ostensibly don't use right because mm -hmm. you pick up research and statistics skills and all sorts of things that I do use even if I'm not in that field. But I'm always down for, like, a good random seminar, and I don't care how related, you know, so I do the human resources law <laughs> seminars, but then it could also be something completely more random, and I think it's just keeping in that lifelong learning spirit. And, you know, Facebook doesn't really count. Like, you can't just scroll. <laughs> you can't just scroll the interwebs and read the news sometimes and be like, that's it, I've learned. But I think that that's where you also manifest some of those random opportunities, right? Like, I wouldn't have found the idea foundry or known what to look for. for like, that wasn't something that was on my radar to mm -hmm. look for. Like, oh, you're going to 
find this random small business and then you're going to become the CEO of, you're going to ultimately become the CEO of that small business mm-hmm. and and it'll be a multi-million dollar business like that wasn't on my radar at the yeah. time as to even be aware of and it wouldn't have been if it wasn't sort of just out there mm-hmm. like I don't know what to do right now so I guess I'm just going to find people and keep learning things and figure it out yeah awesome Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Casey. It was a great conversation. I appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, y'all.